0: What an awesome promise. Very end of that text. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What a reminder of his sovereignty that we need today. Well, if you're just joining us uh, this morning, we we welcome you as our guest. Uh, If you're just joining us online, we're back online, right, brothers? Um, If if you're joining us online, maybe for the first time, um, we have been going through the book of Habakkuk for the last two weeks. We're right now in, in, uh, ver- uh, in, in the third week of a five-week journey or study through this, uh, through this book of the Old Testament. And just to give you a, a brief recap, um, the, this, this story or this book opens with Habakkuk, a, a little-known prophet, calling out to God and saying in the verse, first four verses of, of, of this book, of chapter one, God, where are you? Um, How long will you be silent? How long will you not see or listen? How long will you allow the wickedness, specifically the injustice and the, the violence in my society, that would be in Jerusalem, to continue unanswered? And God answered him in verse 5 through 11. God said, yes, I have been watching and I've seen everything. And don't worry, my hand of judgment is coming at the tip of the sword of the wicked Babylonians. And they're coming just to devastate your city and your country. And God even goes on and describes their war machine. Well, that's not exactly what Habakkuk had in mind. And so he responds with his second complaint, which is the remainder of chapter 1. You can see it starting in verse 12. In which Habakkuk changes his tune a bit. And he says, wait a minute, God. How can you be just and allow people who are far more wicked than we are to come and be your instruments for judging us? And so we looked at the beginning of God's answer to Habakkuk last week in in the first four verses. um, Actually, verses 2 through 5 of chapter 2, in which God told Habakkuk that his plan is certain... His plan is just, and his plan is consistent. That is, we saw in verse 4, that the righteous shall live by his faith. In in Habakkuk's day, that meant that though the the righteous man may not fully understand God's providence, the way he is to survive spiritually, and, and physically, but spiritually, is to walk by faith in God's revealed plan. And then God explains more, and of course, We know that today the Lord still works that way by calling his people to, first of all, be saved through faith in Christ, but then to walk by faith and not by our own wisdom or by our own sight. So today we're going to look at God's uh, continual revelation here that he told Habakkuk to write down. And we're going to see in verse 6 through 20 the five woes that God gives against Babylon, or the Babylonians. In other words, God is saying, don't worry Habakkuk, I'm going to use them sovereignly as my instruments of justice against your sin, the sin of your people, but they're going to get theirs too, and boy will they. Uh, And we see this with God's five woes of displeasure. Now, first of all, the good news here, okay, there is a lot of judgment in this text. But the good news is that we see here that God is sovereign that one day he will indeed judge the wicked and one day he's going to recreate the earth. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I look forward to at the very end of this sermon kind of coming back to verse 14 and for us to consider what does that mean and how we live our lives today. But first The five woes against Babylon. And I invite you inside, if this is helpful for you, uh, I've included some sermon notes inside your bulletin this morning. Usually I leave blanks. Um, This morning I forgot to actually delete those blanks. So, hey, you get a little help. Hopefully that will help you just focus right up here, right? Um, So the five woes against Babylon. What's going on here is God is specifically answering Habakkuk's cry for justice. He's saying that he will indeed hold the wicked Babylonians to account. And here we see in these five woes, proportionate retribution. The principle of proportionate retribution from God to the Babylonians for their sins. Now, before we move on, Proportionate retribution from God is a concept that if we're honest, we probably struggle a little bit in our culture with. And the reason for that is we have become accustomed to cheap grace. I read an article a couple days ago uh, uh, on the Gospel Coalition by a pastor named Joe Carter who was discussing recent cases of sexual abuse a number, uh, uh, among a number of prominent Christian leaders, uh, something that's just been devastating to the witness of the church. Uh, he was actually his specific article was about some of the allegations uh, that have come to light recently uh, against Rabbi Zacharias. Um, just heartbreaking stuff. And and so as he's diving into that at the end of the article, Joe Carter talks about the attitude of entitlement and the. Culture of a lack of accountability that has that kind of taken place in a lot of the church and in a lot of Christian organizations. But then he writes this undergirding both of these flaws, that would be entitlement and lack of accountability, is a foundation of cheap grace. And then he goes on and quotes Bonhoeffer, who wrote, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness. Without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living in living and incarnate. End quote from Bonhoeffer. Now, here's what I I I want you to remember from Joe Carter. He then writes. The denial of cheap grace in our words and the acceptance of cheap grace in our actions is one of the most fundamental aspects of American Christianity. I'm just going to read that one more time because I want you to stop and think about it, okay? Think about not just other people, but think about us and ourselves and how we live when no one else is watching before a holy God, okay? The denial of cheap grace in our words, I believe we would all agree with Bonhoeffer. And the acceptance of cheap grace in our actions, well, God will forgive me, is one of the most fundamental aspects of American Christianity. So as we go through these five woes, we need to remember that, yes, God will proportionally Judge the wicked Babylonians for their violence, their arrogance, and their injustice. But he will also judge us if we engage in similar patterns of sin. So let's watch out for ourselves and let's be quick and eager even to confess any seeds of these Babylonian sins that might be germane in our own lives. So let's look at the first one. The first woe. And, and that is that the plunderer will be plundered. Verse 6 through 8. God says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? And say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because... You have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. Now, now at first glance, it might seem like the sin here at issue was that of foolishly taking on debts. And you almost have this picture here of, of debtors, you know, like going out there and, you know, borrowing 5,000 bucks from a gangster. And, you know, uh, let me tell you something, little Vito. If you don't pay me back in three weeks, I'm going to stick your head under the water three times and pull it up twice, if you know what I mean. That, that kind of stuff, right? But but actually, the more you look at it, the, the woe is actually specifically for warmongering. The, the Babylonians plundered nations, and they shed blood and ravaged cities and and even landscapes. Interesting here, God's concern for his earth in order for them to build their wealth. And so we see in verse 7 that God will one day, though he's patient, boom, suddenly judgment will come one day. God will turn the tables. That's why those who have been oppressed by Babylon... Are invited to join in the taunt against Babylon. Specifically, you see him used. That word him is talking about the king of Babylon, and by representation, all of those people that he leads. Okay? So God says that he will, the king of Babylon, and the Babylonians will in turn be plundered by the nations, specifically by the remnants of the peoples that he oppressed. So in a sense, they're going to be like the, 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 the gangsters, and the king of Babylon is going to be little Vito. In 539 B.C., Babylonian, Babylon fell. The Babylonian Empire fell to the Medes and the Persians. And it's interesting to note that this was less than a century after the beginnings of the Babylonian Empire. So this was actually a very short-lived empire, In the history of the world. Now the city of Babylon lasted longer. And we're going to talk about later how Babylon itself was destroyed. But in Daniel chapter 5 you can actually read about the last night of the Babylonian empire. With the the, the writing of the the finger. the, The handwriting of God as it were. On the walls of Belshazzar's palace. He had brought out the... The sacred cups and, and plates from the, the, that had been pillaged from the, the temple of God, it, of, of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And, and they were having a, you know, a drunken feast to all these pagan deities with them. And that finger wrote on the wall and Daniel was brought out to interpret. And we read at the very end of chapter 5, verse 30 of Daniel. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king or the Babylonian king was killed. And the man who took his place, who conquered the Babylonian Empire, was Darius, who was not a Babylonian. He was a Mede. He was the son of Cyrus the Great, that Persian emperor and conqueror. And he took over the kingdom. So at that point, the Babylonian Empire fell. And then later went through uh, cycles of of destruction. Well, Dr. O. Palmer Robertson... um, Old Testament scholar, uh, really, I thought, uh, applied this section well, that the plunder will be plundered to our own lives. Here's what he he wrote. The message of reciprocal judgment should sober up the sentimental outlook of modern civilization. If if each person exacting excessive interest of debtors would consider that in the dispensations of God, he shall receive precisely the same treatment he inflicts he might be led to repentance. If politicians and commanders of military forces accustomed to functioning in brutal, ruthless fashion would understand that they and their people shall one day receive the same treatment at the hands of those they oppress, a genuine crying to God for mercy in a context of repentance might become more frequent. While the mills of God may grind slowly, They grind exceedingly fine. For the plunderer will be plundered. Second woe is that the eagle's nest will be brought down. Look at verse 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. To be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. Now, some of you know that the Eagle's Nest was the name, not the German name, but the name that everybody else called a Nazi stronghold that, that stood on top of a mountain overlooking a uh, beautiful town of Birches Garden in, in the southeastern uh, area of Bavaria, Germany, right along the border of Austria. Uh, looking over Lake Cognosy, just a beautiful place, but it was a place that, that Hitler visited at least 14 times, built by the Nazis, up on a mountaintop, uh, unreachable by the enemy, so they, so they thought. And, and today, it's a cafeteria. And if you show up, the, 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 if you, maybe some of you have been there, they don't really like to talk about it a whole lot. It's just a cafeteria with a beautiful view. You know, the, but the idea here was uh, to, to build a house above the reach of all enemies. That's the picture we have here, right? The idea might be of like a, maybe, maybe you think of like a mafia don or, or like a drug kingpin, maybe down in, in Latin America, you know, with this beautiful house, right? Uh, with, with fine furniture and art and even maybe a, a semblance of grace, maybe there 's somebody playing a harp you know, and someone 's serving drinks, and if you 're his guest, you get to pretend to live in this great civilized manner, and yet it 's been built on the back of oppression and, and wickedness, right you know the money for everything has come from from enslavement of people to drugs and the op- oppression of farmers and communities and, and it 's guarded by walls and watchtowers and guys with with assault rifles, right? We've all seen the movies, right? And so the idea here is is that, you know, of of trying to build a place that your enemies can't touch you, and and oftentimes uh, the end of these guys is violent. Verse 10 says, This kind of eagle's nest was built by the Babylonians by the cutting off of many people. We we see a very interesting um, analogy here uh, in verse 11. Um, A metaphor, I should say. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Reminds me of Jesus in Luke chapter 19 answering, I tell you if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Except in this situation, it's exactly opposite. The very house that you have built will cry out against you, for God will bring your house down in shame. You have forfeited your life. That's that's the message to the proud Nebuchadnezzar. Well, verse or the third woe here in verse twelve is that the proud city will be devastated. And you can see how these woes build on each other and kind of follow the logic, right? The plunder will be plundered. The eagle's nest will be brought down. And now the, the proud city, that would be Babylon, will be devastated. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Well, let's, let's just stop and think for a moment About the history of cities and the purpose of human civilization. One Old Testament scholar wrote A city represents the final fruition of mankind's efforts to subdue the earth. The city solidifies into a single whole the resources of intelligence and skill provided by a number of diverse individuals in accord with the purposes of God in creation and redemption. The populace of a city should work together to form a culture and a community which performs all of its functions to the glory of God. Well, how are we doing with that as Homo sapiens now and throughout history? Let's look back in history, the the very beginnings of cities. We read about it in Genesis. And By the time we get to Genesis chapter 11, we see the city of Babel, right? This, this city that, that people who all had the same language and culture came together and built and said, let's build a tower to the heavens so that nobody could touch us. There's this idea of, of instead of glory to the Lord, of self-dependency going on at Babel and, and human pride going on at Babel. And so what does God do? We see in verse 8 of Genesis 11, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Later in Genesis, we read about the depravity and, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as, as cities just became Places full of of vileness and and wickedness and abuse. Genesis 19, 24 says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Well, verse 13 of our text says, Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts. I'm sorry, let me start over because it's important to, to get this. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merrily for fire? And nations worry themselves for nothing. When, when I first looked at this, I, I, I was kind of wondering okay, is it saying that, you know, are people just working for fire and it's just kind of futile? Um, we, we, we had just gotten our fireplace, uh, first time after five years of owning our house, um, repaired to a point where we could light a fire safely, and we did. And then for the entire next week, the whole house smelled like creosote, you know. <laughs> and I'm thinking, Ugh, you know, um, all, that, all that work and expense, you know, for this. Um, well, actually, that's not the meaning here, okay, that fire is futile. Fire, we know, is very useful. Uh, and by this point in human civilization, humans had figured out how to make fire quite well. It wasn't really that, that hard for them. Um, so here what God's talking about with fire is judgment, Behold, is it not from the Lord that peoples labor merrily for doom, judgment, the fire of God? Babylon was a proud and a beautiful city. Historians wax eloquently about the the Hanging Gardens of of Babylon. Maybe you've seen, you know, artists renderings of this this idea of you know the, the kind of like a big ziggurat, you know, this big, amazing you know buildings with with. You know, built strong enough with stone where they could have all the, 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 the dirt up there to be able to have plants and gardens and trees and and you know, just something that people spoke of for, for centuries. So it was a beautiful and a, and a proud city, but built on the back of oppression. So God says, All of this that you are building through the oppression of others, all this. That you take pride in, will be devastated, and ultimately, Babylon, Babylon was devastated. It was so destroyed completely that it was just simply lost to the sands of time. It wasn't until 1819 that archaeologists discovered ancient Babylon. Some, some questioned whether it existed or not, and then they find it. You know, again, the Bible keeps proving itself over and over. The more we dig, the more we learn, the more we study. And, and there it is. And today, if you, if you like, you could fly to Baghdad and bad and take a taxi a couple hours south. And you could go and explore ancient Babylon. At least the ruins and the archaeological uh, um, uh, leftovers. The things that they have d- dug up, including the outline of a giant ziggurat that was dedicated to the Babylonian god Marduk. Right there in the middle of the ancient city. In fact, some people think that that was the original Tower of Babel. Others disagree with that. But in contrast to this great city that will be one day destroyed, God says this, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now we're going to talk in a little while about the positive ways That God does this. Including through my dear brother and sister. Mike and Libby. Hopefully through all of our efforts. God. Extending his kingdom. Extending the knowledge of his glory. Right? Uh, To unreached people groups. to, to, To our neighbors. But right now. I want to talk about. One way that God fills the earth. With his knowledge. Of his glory. Is by destruction by judgment of wicked cities kids think about sandcastles building sandcastles by the sea well what happens you might build a proud sandcastle if you're like maybe maybe you've worked on a sandcastle and then you build a moat and then you try to build a protection wall with the sand around that sandcastle but if you go back the next day what, what 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 what's there I mean, after high tide, there's no sandcastle left, right? Well, well, in this case, the sandcastle is the house that mankind builds on sand. Arrogant, wicked civilizations of man that rebel against their creator. So the very first application of this wonderful prophecy of God filling the earth with his glory is that he will wipe out cities of wickedness for the proud city will be devastated the fourth woe is that the shameless abuser will be shamed verse 15 through 17 and because this is God's word we've got to read it but I'm not going to fully expound on this section because some of this is graphic and not exactly family friendly okay I'll I'll try to give you the overall general idea Um, but I don't feel comfortable in this setting with, with families present to go into the exact details that are here. But let me just read this, verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. What we see here is a description of abuse, even sexual abuse, Going on here. Making neighbors drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. Now there were implications when you study this phrase here throughout the Bible of, of what that means. Okay? But in general, we're talking about taking advantage of people. And this was likely an accurate description of the debauchery of the king of Babylon. And the royal court. And how, what the things that they did. To people. But it's also a picture of Babylon's national sin. Notice how in the book of Revelation, and there are other texts in the Bible as well, but in Revelation 18, Babylon is used as a personification of, of all of the lust and the materialism of human societies. And so we read in Babylon, and sorry, not in Babylon, in Revelation 18, verse 2. An angel crying out, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her Luxurious living. So Babylon, that whole culture is a picture of sexual depravity and the abuse of people. The strong using their power to prey upon the weak. People taking advantage, manipulating, even getting people drunk to do terrible things to them. Sadly, we've seen plenty of that in our own culture, have we not? But Babylon was also a picture of violence, not only against human beings made in God's image, but against God's creation. God loves his creation. Look at verse 17. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and to all who dwell in them. Now you may wonder, okay, why, why are we talking about Lebanon all of a sudden instead of Jerusalem, right? Well, throughout the Old Testament, especially in wisdom literature, we see that the Jews often waxed poetically about Lebanon. The be- it's like a garden, the beauty of Lebanon, particularly her tall cedars, the, the ancient cedars of Lebanon. The best thing we have, you know, close to that would be like maybe the giant sequoias and the redwoods of California, right? These towering pictures of God's amazing creation here. And yes, Lebanon was not technically in Israel. It was north of the border. But it might be kind of like the way Texans look at Colorado, the mountains. You know, you get a bunch of Texans who just came back from a ski trip, and they might talk about northwest Texas. Okay, that was kind of the idea here. Okay, so... So here we see God's displeasure in the indiscriminate destruction of his creation. There are were, there were annals of Assyrian and Babylonian kings bragging about their ability and their power to take their chariots up to Lebanon and with axes to destroy the, the cedars of Lebanon. I think that's kind of what this, this prophecy is getting at here. This, this woe is getting at God's displeasure at, at human beings wantonly destroying his creation. We see here specifically the animals brought out, along with humans. The, the Babylonians destroyed cities and they scorched the earth. And so what we see here is that God will shame the shameless abusers of people and creation. Now, before we move on to the next woe, I, I want you to just compare, and I've put this in your, in your notes. Compare here, verse 14 and verse 16, if you will. Look at verse 14 and 16, and I want you to think about, I've got them boxed in in my, in my, in my copy of the word. The word's filled and glory and cover. So compare the glory of the Lord in verse 14. For the, for the earth will be filled... With the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And compare that, the glory of the Lord, with this prophecy of Babylon's shame. In verse 16, what God's going to do to Babylon. He writes, verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Glory. And then at the end, he says the cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Another translation would be utter shame will cover your glory. So it's the exact opposite of verse 14. One day the earth will rejoice. So it will be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But for Babylon and all who drink of her wickedness, they will be instead filled with shame, They may seem to have glory right now, but they will be filled with shame and utter shame will cover their glory. Let's remember that as we look at human civilizations and societies that one day, truly the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then finally, our fifth woe, we see that the worthless idolatry Of the Babylonians, and frankly, all of humanity will be silenced. The worthless idolatry will be silenced. Verse 18 What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. Now, here is one woe that clearly we don't need to worry about. We're much too sophisticated to ever prostrate ourselves before an idol, right? Not. I see... Billy Moore here shaking his head. No. Um, Idols of the heart. Let's consider one example of idolatry that's rampant in our culture. That would be the the sin of envy. Right? The the sin of envy. Think about envy. Wanting what is not yours. Something someone else has. How, How many of our politics today are shaped by envy? How many of our commercials appeal to envy, to make money? Dr. Robertson mentions, reminds us that Ephesians 5 tells us that covetousness, or envy, is idolatry. It actually says that, covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, here's what he writes about this. Whenever a person's desire looks to the creature rather than to the creator, he is guilty of the same kind of foolishness as idolatry. An insatiable desire for things not rightly possessed assumes that things can satisfy rather than God himself. Whenever a person sets his priorities on the things made rather than the maker of things, he is guilty of idolatry. Did you catch that? What will it take? Someone asked Howard Hughes, I believe, to make you satisfied. (laughs) A little bit more. Ancients thought that they could create images that had spiritual beings behind them to control through worship. Okay, so these people weren't, they were knuckleheads, but they weren't completely stupid. All right, they didn't think that because they, you know, took a piece of wood and carved a, you know, a little statue that that they had created a, you know, a living, um, um, powerful God, what they believed was that that could connect them to some kind of a spirit, right? Some kind of a, a God that they could then manipulate to doing their bidding. They may worship it, they may serve it, but that God somehow then would have to um, serve them, protect them, bless them, you know, uh, uh, curse one of their enemies, This is what's going on today around the world in in cultures that embrace animism and and Hinduism. It's the same thing. And so the question is, all right, are we guilty today of trying to recreate a God in our own image who will serve us? Kind of heavenly Santa Claus that we can manipulate. A best friend, Jesus, who is not coming in the clouds in judgment. Now I hope Jesus is your best friend. But read Revelation's depiction of Jesus coming back as conqueror and hero. uh, One who we, we bow down at his feet. Well verse 20 says but the Lord is in his holy temple let all the earth keep silence before him. That's the end of these five woes. That is the That is the response to idolatry. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. I look forward next week to talking about how this very vision and this very speech from God, particularly verse 20, changes the prophet Habakkuk. From a man questioning God's justice and his goodness and the way he operates to a man who worships God. How should this affect us? Well, you know, I hope it brings you comfort. Things may not look right, fair, or just to us now, but let's remember that God is sovereign over history and that he will indeed achieve his purposes. Psalm 46, six says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. That's the final end of it. Now, the American church, I believe, undervalues today the justice of God. But God's justice and his holiness are prerequisites for truly understanding the gospel of Christ. A just and a holy God demands retribution. Proportional retribution for Sin. This is not often talked about today in our, in our, in our culture, in our churches, um, from our pulpits. But the doctrine of hell, it is not a popular doctrine. It's not something I like to think about uh, because I love people. But hell is proportionate judgment. Many people struggle with that. How can eternal punishment be proportionate for a temporal amount of sin? But the, the, the deal is, our sin is against an eternal, holy God. And so that is why there is good news against that backdrop. That is why the gospel is essential. And why it is good and how, why it is the only hope for all of humanity. And why it is truly the good news. That Jesus Christ died on the cross to satisfy the justice of God that our sins demand. Because when I choose to sin, though I might not fully recognize it, I am rebelling against an eternal, holy God. I hope as well that that thinking on God's justice will help you see the uh, necessity and the beauty of the gospel, but also that it will bring comfort to you. The, The wicked will not always prosper wicked will not always prosper. I'm thankful that we live in a culture that has still been so influenced by Christian principles that often we see the wicked not prospering in our culture. Meaning for a time wicked men or women will get away with oppression but generally and not always but often they are brought to justice in our culture. But one day this will be complete one day the wicked will not prosper one day god will make all things right so let's conclude our time by thinking about the promise that we see here of hope in verse 14 for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the sea well i look forward to that day when is it going to happen and, and in a sense, it already has. But in another sense, it hasn't yet fully happened. Why do I say there's an already aspect to this promise? That the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters will cover the sea. Well, the way in which it has this prophecy has already happened is that God did indeed wipe out the wicked Babylonians. The Babylonian empire is no more. Neither is the wicked Assyrian Empire or countless other wicked nations and regimes. Recent examples would be the Nazis and the Soviets who were guilty of the national sins of Babylon. So in that sense, we have seen a fulfillment of this prophecy. In a positive sense, we've also seen the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh and the gospel of Jesus Christ moving from not just a small sliver of land in the ancient Near East that we call Israel, OK? Not just being contained there, but, but today, this knowledge has moved into every geopolitical nation on Earth. There, there's not a country, as we define it, by lines drawn on a map, where you will not find churches. Now, in some of these places, they're small, and there's very few of them, and, and they're, they're, you know, house churches, they're underground. But there are believers covering the map. Praise be to God. Now, when we think about what the scriptures mean when it says nations. Okay, in, in the New Testament, we think of the Great Commission. Jesus sending his disciples out to all the nations. That word in Greek is ethnos. Okay, in, in the, 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 in the Hebrew word might better be translated something like peoples or, or families. Right? People groups. Well, missiologists tell us today that there are about 12,000 biblical nations or people groups scattered among the earth. They may not be exactly right, but that's their best estimate. Okay, and, and today around 9,000 of them could be categorized as reached. I mean, the gospel is living. There are churches that have the capability to, to, to broadcast the gospel such that the majority of people can hear it if they want to. Well, praise God for that. I mean, talk about a fulfillment of prophecy here, right? And yet, it hasn't completely been reached because there's still 3,000 of these. And, and many of these are just like the, 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 the people group that our friends are headed towards, right? Uh, small, fewer than 10,000 of them. Uh, there's around 3,000 of these smaller groups of people that we call unengaged, unreached people group. So there's a not yet aspect to this prophecy it hasn't yet fully been fulfilled. The promise will be finally and completely fulfilled, of course, at the very end of the age. By Jesus when he returns and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. And we read about the future of world history for all those who put their trust in Christ at the very end of the book. Remember, At Babel, God scattered the very first proud nation into many different languages that became many different ethnic groups and nations. But one day, He's going to gather the nations with all of their beautiful languages, unified in worship around the throne of God. That's what we see pictured in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what we look forward to. We will look forward to the new heavens and the new earth that we read about at the very end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, where John looks up and he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. A new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I find that interesting. Mike, maybe that depresses you. I'm, I'm going with metaphorical on that one for, for the sea representing wickedness, as you often see throughout the Old Testament. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Can you imagine a a life without death? I'm not sure I really can, because it's so ingrained into how we live. I mean, we're used to the seasons, to leaves dying, right? I mean, can you imagine that? Neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Some of you have to live with pain. I know some of you that I'm talking to online aren't able to be here because you live with pain. That is not your future if you're in Christ. For the former things have passed away. Why? Well, I, I look forward to this day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth As the waters cover the sea, I look forward to that certain future that we have, the celestial city that we're to live for. So, what is it gonna take to get there? Right? It's a promise that's already partially been fulfilled, but not yet fully, so we live between the already and the not yet. What's it gonna take to get there? Well, first of all, God's sovereign coordination of history, the secret things belong to the Lord. But you know what? He's revealed a lot to us, and he has given us a commission. He's given us a commission. He's given us a job to do that has a part in fulfilling his plan for history. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, ethnos, people groups, to all people groups, and then the end will come. That's what Jesus said. And so we have a role to play, brothers and sisters, in world history, and it's not making prosperity and comfort our God. Even now, the promise of Habakkuk 2.14 is being fulfilled as Christians take the gospel to the unreached. So what part do you play in this? What part will you play in this? What should we do about this today? Well, this means that we need to be all about getting the gospel to the unreached, but also being faithful witnesses in our neighborhoods. Today, we're going to recommission our brother and our sister to fully begin a new work in taking the good news through the seas to unreached island peoples. And I just love that image as I think about Habakkuk 2.14. I love the image in my mind of, of Mike and Libby and their son Asher crossing waters in their boat to help cover the earth in his glory. Battling at times the wind and the tide. But let's do the same by crossing the street. One day, the knowledge of Christ will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea completely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are sovereign over history. You are sovereign over our lives. And we pray that we would have the pleasure of being a part of your work in our community and around the world by being heralds of your good news. I I, I pray that we would have beautiful feet for how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And not only on the mountains, but on the beaches of people who bring good news. People who might even have smelly feet, have beautiful feet in your eyes. Lord, may that be us. I pray that our feet would not just be covered with leather or designer shoes, but they would truly be beautiful in your eyes because we use them to take the gospel to those who need it. Lord, help us not waste a day or a week. And Lord, I pray that you be honored as we commission, recommission our, our brother and our sister uh, for the work of, of your gospel. In Jesus Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Well, for those.